This is Audible. Blackstone Audio presents The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution by Kevin R. C. Gutzman, J.D., Ph.D. The dedication reads, To Lori, who makes all things new again, and everything seem possible. Introduction Few subjects in American life are so thoroughly mystified, so completely surrounded by a myth of incomprehensibility, as the United States Constitution. From its earliest days, its exponents, chiefly lawyers and judges, but with the helping of other politicians, journalists, and authors of various kinds thrown in, have trained the people at large to believe that only the few, the specially trained elite, can understand it. If court rulings interpreting the Constitution defy common sense, well, that must be because common sense is so common. In introductory lessons about America's federal government, students are introduced to the ideas of republicanism, limited government, and federalism. Republicanism refers to a system in which policymakers are chosen through popular elections. Limited government and federalism are simply two sides of the same coin. They are different ways of understanding a system in which the states came first, delegated some carefully enumerated powers to a central government, and retained the rest for themselves. But in what sense is our federal government limited? What remains of the idea that power over almost all significant issues is retained by the states? Why is it, in other words, that issues such as homosexual sodomy, abortion, and affirmative action, not to mention prayer in schools and the outcome of the 2000 presidential election in Florida, are decided by federal judges? Whatever happened to republicanism, limited government, and federalism? In recent decades, numerous judges, and particularly the platonic guardians of the Supreme Court, have undertaken to use the Constitution as a blank check, allowing them to write into American law their own ideas of, quote, the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society, unquote, as Chief Justice Earl Warren put it in Trop v. Dulles, 1958. Note the allusion to Darwin's theory of evolution here. If the judges' conceptions of decency differ from those of all their predecessors, then today's judges must be superior to their predecessors because they have evolved within their maturing society. And, of course, if the judges' ideas differ from those of the majority of the electorate, that only shows how much further the judges have evolved and how superior they really are. This is not to say that every federal judge or every judge on the Supreme Court fancies himself a platonic guardian but it is to say that judges face few constraints on foisting their own views on the people as constitutional law. Yet for a judge today disinclined to legislate constitutional law, the obstacles to self-restraint are formidable. First, he will have to deal with the criticism, and, if he is consistent, eventually with the derision, of the media, of politicians, and of legal academics. Second, and perhaps more important, he will have to escape from the mode of thought inculcated in him by his legal education. For a century now, instruction in American law schools has focused on the case method. Prospective lawyers do not study the continental, English, and colonial antecedents of the federal constitution. Neither do they read the records of the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, where the constitution was written, or the ratification debates that led to its implementation. Instead, they imbibe the latest opinions on constitutional matters from the courts, and particularly from the Supreme Court. Those opinions, and not the Constitution's text as understood by the people when they ratified it, 
are what law schools teach as constitutional law. This law is the product, to a large degree, of the political preferences refracted through the constitutional theories of judges and lawyers. It has almost nothing to do with history or with the original understanding of particular provisions. Thus, asked by a student why his constitutional law class would not be reading any of the Federalist, a famous constitutional law professor at an elite law school responded that the Federalist has nothing to do with constitutional law. The sad thing is that the professor was right, because today's constitutional law is not constitutional at all. Even originalist judges' application of the Constitution to real cases, as we will see, is far removed from Thomas Jefferson's test of the Constitution's meaning. Quote, the true sense in which it was adopted by the states, that in which it was advocated by its friends. Unquote. Jeffersonian judges have seldom dominated the Supreme Court, certainly not in the last three quarters of a century. This book's goal is to explain how the Constitution was understood in the first place, and then to chronicle the federal court's history of dealing with it. It will show how we went from the Constitution's Republican federal government, with its very limited powers, to an unrepublican judgeocracy with limitless powers. The approach is historical, to see the Constitution as we should see it, in its original context, as it was originally understood, and to chart over the course of two centuries how we got from there to here. Perhaps more than anything else, the politically incorrect guide to the Constitution provides further illustration of the old adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Chapter 1 What Made the Constitution? Revolution and Confederation Guess what? The American colonists fought to rid themselves of an intrusive government they couldn't control. Does that remind you of nine unelected oracles in robes? The Articles of Confederation were not designed to create a new nation, but to protect the rights of the states that were joined as the United States. Why do we have a federal constitution anyway? Before we can understand the Constitution's meaning, we have to have an idea of its purpose. There were 26 British colonies in the New World when the American Revolution began. They had distinct histories, and they had been founded for distinct purposes, at distinct times, by distinct groups of people. The British government essentially displayed an attitude of benign neglect toward the American colonies, including the 13 that ultimately joined together in 1775 to fight for their rights. It did not, for the most part, legislate regarding their internal affairs, and it did not tax them internally. Each of the colonies had its own government, including a governor and an assembly with a representative element. The colonists grew accustomed to considering their colonial governments as analogous to the British government in England. The British had their king, House of Lords, and House of Commons, made up of elected members, while Virginia, for example, had its appointed governor, its council, and its House of Burgesses, the first elective assembly in the New World. Colonial charters, which described how the government of a particular colony worked, often included guarantees to the colonists of their rights. Thus, Virginia's charter said that King James I's colonists there would have all the rights of his subjects in England. When one governor of colonial Virginia left office, a new one with a new commission replaced him. These commissions often included new guarantees of the colonists' English rights. People in Virginia, the first, largest, and most populous colony, sanguinely enjoyed their ongoing status as Englishmen. The Trouble Begins Well, not entirely as Englishmen. 
They had no representation in Parliament, and after the middle of the 17th century could not export goods from Virginia without transshipment through England. This regulation of commerce, as it was called in those days, seemed a small price to pay for inclusion in the British Empire, which benefited colonists and denizens of the home islands alike. None of this is to suggest, however, that there was never conflict between the colonies and England over events in the New World. There certainly was. In the 1750s, Virginians bridled at the attempt of one of their governors to charge them for land patents in the Pistole fee controversy. The elected House of Burgesses insisted to the royally appointed governor that he had no authority to tax the colonists and that this new fee amounted to a tax. In the end, the governor backed down. The real theoretical difficulty arose in the 1760s, when Britain won the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763, which in America was called the French and Indian War, 1754 to 1763. This First World War had begun with a skirmish started by a young Virginia militia major named George Washington. Victory in the war proved a mixed blessing for Great Britain. On one hand, the British had seized much of France's colonial empire, including Canada. On the other, they had done so chiefly through the invention of modern deficit finance, which allowed them to buy the latest warships in numbers the French, who had far more men and natural resources than Britain, could not match. So, in the end, Britain had acquired a greater empire and a huge debt. While people throughout the empire, including in the thirteen American colonies, celebrated their victory, the question arose: What was to be done about the debt? The period 1763 to 1775 was marked by repeated British efforts to get some money, any money, out of the colonists to help service the new imperial debt. While the colonists had willingly provided men and money, along with various supplies, to the war effort, they proved unwilling to be taxed directly. As the New York Assembly put it in a 1764 petition to the British House of Commons, New Yorkers had been willing to provide money when asked to do so, and even to provide more than had been requested. But they would not accept being taxed by a legislature, the British Parliament, in which they were not represented. At first, arguments against Parliament's taxing the colonies were presented in a conciliatory way. After all, the colonists were British and enthusiastically patriotic. It was only yesterday that they had won the First World War against Britain's most powerful rival. They were persuaded that the unwritten British Constitution was the world's finest. They had defeated Papist France with its absolute monarchy because they were free. And many believed because God favored their Protestant nation, but the colonists would not pay taxes to a parliament they had not elected. They protested, they boycotted, they bullied representatives of the crown, and they organized a congress, the Stamp Act Congress, to speak formally for them. But the British, for their part, would not respond to the congress. King George the Third believed that the colonies must be either subject to the king in parliament or independent. He would make them comply. In the course of the 1760s and 1770s, Britain sent home New York's legislature, reorganized Massachusetts government, closed Boston's port, restricted access to trial by jury, and adopted various other laws intended to make it easier to tax the colonists. The colonists' response was a more and more heartfelt no. Holy Pistole! In 1752, Lieutenant Governor Robert Dinwiddie tried to charge a pistole. A coin valued at a little more than one English pound for signing any land patent. The governor's signature had always been required, but no governor had ever tried to charge for it. Virginians were outraged and created the slogan "Liberty, Property, and No Pistole" in protest. Dinwiddie claimed that the pistole fee was his prerogative as the king's representative, 
but the people argued that it was a tax on them without the consent of their elected representatives in the General Assembly. Dinwiddie said the colonists were much inflamed with Republican principles and wondered if they were becoming a threat to his royal authority because they had been allowed to govern themselves for too long. If this be treason, make the most of it. In Virginia, a young member of the House of Burgesses named Patrick Henry offered his colleagues a set of resolutions. He wanted the elected representatives of America's most important colony to go on record in opposition to the Stamp Act of 1765, a British tax measure, and he wanted them to do it in a radical way. Henry's resolutions against the Stamp Act, later known as the Virginia Stamp Act Resolves, said that Virginians had always had from their colony settlement all the privileges and immunities of the people of Great Britain. Virginia's two royal charters of the 17th century, Henry pointed out, had made that guarantee. Moreover, Virginians had always enjoyed the right of being thus governed by their own assembly in the article of taxes and internal police. Henry would have had the Burgesses resolve that the general assembly of this colony, together with His Majesty, have the only exclusive right and power to lay taxes and imposts upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that every attempt to vest such power in any other person or persons whatever is illegal, unconstitutional, and unjust, and has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. Along this same line, he insisted that His Majesty's liege people, the inhabitants of this colony, are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatever, designed to impose any taxation whatsoever upon them, other than the laws or ordinances of the General Assembly aforesaid. His final proposed resolution held that any person who shall, by speaking or writing, assert or maintain that any person or persons, other than the General Assembly of this colony, have any right or power to impose or lay any taxation on the people here, shall be deemed an enemy to His Majesty's colony. This was stern stuff. To be recognized as an enemy to the colony opened the door to punishment for treason. Clearly, Patrick Henry, who would dominate Virginia politics for decades to come, believed that Virginians' chief right was the right to govern themselves through their General Assembly. Yet his was still a minority position in America, even among Virginia's political elite. Reflecting most colonists' hope for reconciliation, the Stamp Act Congress of 1765 adopted far more restrained language. Led by Pennsylvania's conservative statesman, John Dickinson, the Congress began by saying that the congressmen, from nine of the colonies, loved the king and his family. Next, they said that the colonists had all the duties of Englishmen. Only then did they get around to insisting that they had the rights of Englishmen. After explaining that they insisted on traditional English rights, including the right to be taxed only by their own representatives, this first American Congress closed by saying that the resolves had been adopted out of duty to call to the king's attention a budding threat to the British Constitution. In the wake of colonial boycotts, intimidation of stamp agents, and formal protests, the British repealed the Stamp Act in 1766. They then passed a new law, the Declaratory Act, in which they claimed authority to legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Britain's Parliament here followed the line of thinking laid out by the all-time leading British legal scholar, Sir William Blackstone. In his four-volume 1765 book, Commentaries on the Laws of England, Blackstone explained a concept called sovereignty. In every society, Blackstone wrote, there must be a sovereign. It could be an individual, a committee, an assembly, or any other type of organization, but there had to be one. That sovereign had ultimate authority. Its decisions were final. It had to be unitary. 
its power could not be shared or limited in any way. And in the British Empire, that sovereign was Parliament. In the Declaratory Act, then, Parliament did not claim anything new. In England, if you favored liberty, you favored parliamentary sovereignty. The historical alternative, after all, had been royal sovereignty, and Britain's constitution had resolved against it. What a patriot said. Let those flatter who fear. It is not an American art. Thomas Jefferson, A Summary View of the Rights of British America Jefferson Stakes Out America's Rights In 1774, a Virginia planter named Thomas Jefferson spelled out the colonists' position in very fiery language. It followed a decade of contention between Parliament and the colonists, a decade marked by increasingly ham-fisted British measures like the coercive acts against Massachusetts and increasingly pugnacious responses by a growing American opposition. Jefferson's pamphlet came to be known as A Summary View of the Rights of British America. Building on a tradition of insistence on local self-government peculiar to Virginia, and borrowing especially from his mentor in constitutional matters, Richard Bland, and borrowing especially from his mentor in constitutional matters, Richard Bland, Jefferson flung the gauntlet at King George's feet. You, King George, he said, are merely a functionary, put in your office for our good, no more than the chief officer of the people, and if you ever cease to serve our purposes, we would be justified in replacing you. Let those flatter who fear, Jefferson said, it is not an American art. According to Jefferson's version of colonial history, the colonies in North America had been founded by Britons exercising their natural right to emigrate. Once they had emigrated to a land still unsettled, they had a right to establish new civil societies. The British Empire, Jefferson claimed, could be a happy one if its constituent parts, the various dominions, were kept in balance. Only the king was in a position to ensure that that happened. As Jefferson had it, each part of the empire, Connecticut, Virginia, Great Britain, Jamaica, and so on, had its own local legislature. The only political institution they had in common was the crown, their common monarch, George III. In case the legislature of one part of the empire should try to coerce another part of the empire into surrendering some of its rights, Jefferson said, it was incumbent upon King George to intervene. He could veto Parliament's legislation if it violated colonists' rights, and Jefferson seemed to be threatening the king to act on the colonists' behalf. Portrait of a Patriot Thomas Jefferson, 1743 to 1826, was the clearest expositor among leading figures of the original understanding of the Constitution. Jefferson did not participate in drafting or ratifying the Constitution, except insofar as he influenced James Madison to agree to work for a Bill of Rights in the First Congress. Yet his 1791 memorandum to President George Washington regarding the constitutionality of the Bank Bill laid out the most cogent of arguments in favor of a respectful, opponents say strict, construction of constitutional language, and his 1798 Kentucky resolutions summarized the state sovereignty version of the Constitution in its most powerful form. Jefferson's 1801 electoral triumph swept his Republicans into power for a quarter century and more, on the basis, he said, of the state sovereignty position. Jefferson's View of the British Empire, a Federation of Independent States Jefferson's vision of the British Empire in 1774 featured a strong federal element. That is, to his way of thinking, there was no national government ruling the whole empire, but instead provincial assemblies in each of the king's dominions. In reference to the British Parliament's suspension of New York's assembly, Jefferson referred to the latter as a free and independent legislature, and equated it in that sense to Parliament. And what was Parliament? 
According to Jefferson, it was a body of men foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws. George III maintained a common foreign and defense policy for the empire, but in matters of local import, the people, through their elected assemblies, should rule themselves. In common with other educated men of the 18th century, Jefferson was well versed in the classical Greek and Latin authors. For him, as for the Greeks, freedom was local self-government. He closed his summary view with the claim that the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy, but cannot disjoin them. George III should interpose to establish fraternal love and harmony through the whole empire. How did the king respond? He never accepted the American colonists' constitutional claims. He subscribed instead to the theory described by Blackstone in 1765. Parliament was sovereign throughout the empire, which meant that its authority could not be limited or divided. The colonists might insist that Britain's constitution did not grant Parliament the power to tax them or deprive them of the right to trial by jury, but the king held that Parliament could legislate for everyone in the British Empire in all cases whatsoever. Parliamentary sovereignty left no room for an assertion of individual or colonial rights. Gunsmoke and Fear of Domestic Tyranny The fighting began at Lexington, Massachusetts, on April 19, 1775. Still, only a minority of colonists thought of independence as desirable. It was a daunting prospect. A declaration of independence meant war, which the colonists might well lose. Even if they won, the colonists would have a victorious army and a conquering general, which had always been a formula for military dictatorship, as a precursor to monarchy. And leaving the British Empire would mean being outside the protective tariff wall behind which the British economy had developed, instead of inside it, where the colonies had become so prosperous. Early in 1776, however, Thomas Paine published his pamphlet, Common Sense. He moved the majority of his fellow colonists from the Loyalist and Undecided columns into the Patriot camp. On May 15, 1776, Virginia's ruling Revolutionary Convention, the May Convention, adopted three resolutions. 1. Virginia must have a Declaration of Rights. 2. Virginia must have a Republican Constitution. 3. Virginia must seek federal relations with such other colonies as wanted them and alliances with whichever foreign powers would enter into them. The delegates then ran a Continental Union flag up the flagpole at the old Virginia capital in Williamsburg. As James Madison wrote that night, Virginia had established its independence. But alone. And as Benjamin Franklin famously put it in another context, the patriots must all hang together, or they would surely all hang separately. So the Virginia Convention, Virginia's ruling body in the Revolution's early days, as the last royal governor had fled the colony, instructed Virginia's representatives in the Second Continental Congress to secure a declaration of American independence. A state is a state is a country. The Congress was, as Massachusetts' John Adams put it, a meeting place of ambassadors. In fact, the word Congress had always denoted assemblies of the representatives of sovereigns, as in the case of the Congress of Westphalia in the 17th century. It made sense, then, when Virginia's Richard Henry Lee stood up to move, in language given to him by the Virginia Convention, that Congress should declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. 
Like the word Congress, the word state had a meaning in the 18th century that may be lost on us today. For a Virginia congressman to say that Virginia was a state was to put it on par not with Brittany in France or Yorkshire in England, but with France and England. Congress responded by appointing a committee to draft a Declaration of Independence. The chairman of the committee, John Adams, had long been the leading spokesman, a tireless pest, really, for independence. As Adams admired a summary view of the rights of British America, he asked Thomas Jefferson to write the first draft of the Declaration. Adams and Ben Franklin made slight alterations to it before the committee presented it to the whole Congress. And what did the Declaration declare? That the colonies were independent states. Politicians and historians have made a habit of fixating on the second paragraph of the Declaration, which includes a restatement of Richard Bland's account of the origin and just powers of government, including the statement, We hold these truths to be self-evident. They say that America was founded on that. But it wasn't. In instructing Richard Henry Lee and his colleagues to secure a Declaration of Independence, the Virginia Convention did not tell them to concoct a new theory of government. The same held true for the other states' representatives. The first three sections of the Declaration, which explained why King George III's stewardship had been found wanting, had no legal effect. That portion of the Declaration was what lawyers call hortatory language. Like a statutory preamble, it was the predicate for the effective section, the one that proclaimed the states independent. In the Declaration's culminating fourth section, Congress declared the colonies to be free and independent states and claimed for them the right to do everything that free countries could do. They were the sovereign equivalents of Russia, Sweden, and Spain. Okay, maybe San Marino and Monaco, but you get the idea. As the war progressed, they continued to behave as if they were. They guarded their sovereignty carefully, never giving to Congress authority that they might be unable to reclaim. In 1777... Congress sent out to the states for their ratification the Articles of Confederation, America's first federal constitution. It began by saying, Articles of Perpetual Union between the states of, and listed the states from north to south. Article 1 said in full, The style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. Article 2 added, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. This language is, under the circumstances, entirely unsurprising. It would have been surprising if they had said anything else. The United States were states, and they had joined together. The fact that their union had no set end date, in part because the length of the war could not be foreseen, was denoted by calling it perpetual. In those days, treaties between European states often purported to be perpetual. This did not mean that neither side could bring a treaty agreement to an end, but that there was no built-in sunset provision. The express reservation of each state's undelegated powers was a hedge against arrogation of power by the Confederation. After all, the new Congress under the Articles was to have an army, so it might well be tempted to intrude on the state's prerogatives. It was for this reason that Article Two noted that sovereignty, indivisible final authority, remained in the states. According to Article 3 of the Confederation, the 13 states entered into this formal relationship, quote, for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, unquote. In keeping with the federal, not national, nature of the new government, Article 5 provided that each state's congressional delegation would have one vote. This provision would not have made sense if the 13 states had been one nation or if their people had been one people. As they were thirteen distinct states, each equally sovereign, however, 
it made sense for them each to carry equal weight in the federal councils. Here again, we must recall that the word state in the 18th century connoted a sovereign entity on the order of Spain or France, not a province like Andalusia or Dauphiné. Articles 6 and 7 bound the states to wage war and carry on diplomacy only through the Confederation. Article 8 said that the expenses of the war would be paid out of a common treasury, into which the states would contribute on the schedule Congress set, but it left to the states the task of deciding what taxation scheme to employ to raise their contributions. As the colonists had insisted that Great Britain allow the states sovereignty over taxes, it was incumbent on them to practice what they preached in their own confederation. Article 9 established procedures for resolving boundary disputes and other matters that might easily have brought the states to blows. It also provided that the Congress could not take major steps such as coining money, borrowing money, appointing a commander-in-chief, and making war, unless nine states agreed to do so. Not majority rule, but a supermajority was required for doing any of those things. Article 13, finally, required the consent of all the states to any amendment of the Articles. Again, while the constitution of a national government could presumably be amended by a national majority, a federal constitution, such as the Articles of Confederation created, required the agreement of all the constituent parts, all the states. This last article also included the Congress's thanks to the great governor of the world, no, not the UN, for the state's ratification. It said that it was effective on the, quote, ninth day of July in the year of our Lord 1778, unquote. To anyone familiar with the form of the dispute between the colonists and the mother country over the previous decade, the various elements of the Articles of Confederation described above cannot be surprising. The colonists had insisted for years that their colonial legislatures alone, not the British Parliament, could tax them. When Parliament had insisted that it alone was sovereign and that sovereignty was ultimate power, the colonies had responded by locating sovereignty in their colonial legislatures. The colonists saw themselves as defending their traditional English rights. They believed that to defend their traditional rights from an overweening British Parliament, it was necessary for the colonies to declare themselves free and independent states. Now, in order to formalize the military alliance that was fighting the revolution, they opted not to merge their thirteen societies into one, but to cooperate so much as seemed necessary to win the war. The Old Dominion Paves the Way Virginia established its independence on May 15, 1776, long before the Declaration of American Independence. What a Patriot Said America was conquered and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was spilt in acquiring lands for their settlement, their own fortunes expended in making that settlement effectual. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and for themselves alone they have a right to hold. Thomas Jefferson, A Summary View of the Rights of British America Chapter 2 Federalism versus Nationalism at the Philadelphia Convention Guess what? In the Treaty of Paris ending the Revolution, King George III recognized the independence not of a single American nation, but of thirteen states, eighteenth-century speak, for nations. The delegates rejected attempts by monarchists and nationalists in the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 to create a national rather than a federal government. While the Revolution absorbed much of the attention of the Continental Congresses and later the Confederation Congress, other issues demanded attention as well during the 1770s and 1780s. 
Among those was the pressing need to provide some type of governance for the larger colony's western lands. The boundary of English settlement at the end of the French and Indian War in 1763 was essentially the peaks of the Appalachian Mountains. In fact, King George III issued a proclamation that year banning his subjects from settling beyond those peaks. He did not want further difficulties with the Indians who had sided with the French during the war. For many wealthy colonists, this royal decree came as a great shock. From John Hancock in Massachusetts to Ben Franklin and the Morrises in the Middle States, from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and George Mason in Virginia, to the Lorenzes in South Carolina, many wealthy people owned land claims beyond the Appalachians, and the king had made those claims worthless. Thus, one of the first things the elite class did upon independence was resuscitate its land titles, or at least its purported land titles. As it turned out, the colony's inland claims often overlapped, and so did the titles the great men thought they owned. So far as Virginia was concerned, what we now call the Midwest belonged to it. In fact, colonial Virginia included not just today's Virginia, but also West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and part of Minnesota. Augusta County, the western county that took in that vast expanse, was the biggest county in history. When Congress sent the Articles of Confederation to the states for their ratification in 1777, twelve ratified, but Maryland held out. Why? Marylanders said that they would never agree to join in a permanent confederation with Virginia so long as it maintained its enormous western land claims. Congress periodically attempted to resolve the title disputes and the boundary issues. However, Virginia congressmen, including George Mason, James Madison, and James Monroe, responded that there was nothing in the Articles of Confederation giving Congress authority to say anything about anyone's land titles in Virginia or about the extent of Virginia's western claims. That being the case, they said, they would not even discuss the matter in Congress. Once again, the history of the Revolution demonstrates that the revolutionaries understood their states to be sovereign, their nations to be their states. If America as a whole had been a nation, and if the Confederation Congress had been a national legislature, such questions should have been resolved by a majority vote. But sovereignty lay in the states. That was the first principle of American government. A Constitution for the United States Even before the Articles finally went into effect in 1781, numerous figures in politics and the military were agitating for a further strengthening of the federal center. These people took the name Federalists. Their efforts ultimately resulted in adoption of the Federal Constitution of 1788. Why did the Federalists want to strengthen Federation? Mostly because they thought the Revolutionary War had exposed the shortcomings of the Continental and Confederation Congresses. The Continental Army and the various state military units seemed perpetually short of men, money, and supplies. The Federalists leapt to the false conclusion that if the thirteen newborn states had had a difficult time in obtaining credit from European monarchies and bankers to fight a war against the greatest power in the world, it must have been because the Articles of Confederation were inadequate. The Federalists invented a litany of complaints about the state and federal governments of the revolutionary decade. They are familiar to students of history today because historians, who tend almost unanimously to side with the Federalists in this dispute, have been echoing them ever since. If states were slow to pay their requisitions, then it must have been because they were selfish and unpatriotic. Federalists claim that only a stronger government could solve the problem of a government that just barely had enough money and coercive power to do what it was intended to do and did not have the resources to do much of anything else. What a wonderful problem! But the Federalist version leaves out some important facts. 
For instance, the total amount of voluntary state contributions supposedly owed to the Confederation by the states in 1788 exceeded the amount of gold and silver, that is, money, in the entire United States. And political scientist Keith L. Doherty has demonstrated that the states actually contributed more to the war effort than any rational choice model would predict. Federalists in the Continental and Confederation Congresses repeatedly attempted to get the states to cede more power to Congress. In each case, they were unsuccessful. Americans from New Hampshire to Georgia simply refused. They did not want to trade one distant, unaccountable authority in the British Parliament for another in a more powerful American Congress. Especially heroic on this score was Little Rhode Island, which refused to ratify a tariff amendment when all twelve other states did. Virginia responded by repealing its ratification, and for Federalists, that was the last straw. The campaign for a stronger federal government grew. Even when King George III admitted defeat, but he admitted defeat to the sovereign and independent states, as Article One of the Treaty of Paris put it, His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States, with New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and Providence plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, to be free, sovereign, and independent states. That he treats with them as such, and for himself, his heirs and successors, relinquishes all claims to the government, propriety, and territorial rights of the same, and every part thereof. Note that King George was required by the terms of the treaty not to admit that America was independent or that the United States was independent, but that the thirteen named states were independent. Interestingly, in Article Five, the American commissioners undertook on behalf of Congress. To implore the states to restore confiscated rights and property to loyalists, this provision, which never bore the fruit the British hoped for, recognized the constitutional situation of the American states, independent not only of Great Britain but also of each other. Article Seven said there would be a perpetual peace between Great Britain and the United States, which meant that the treaty did not have a fixed expiration date. A book you're not supposed to read. Collective action under the Articles of Confederation by Keith L. Dougherty, New York, Cambridge University Press, 2001. Reforming the Confederation. In 1785, the states of Maryland and Virginia appointed delegates to a conference to meet at George Washington's home, Mount Vernon, on the Potomac River. Their task was to negotiate an arrangement for sharing the river, establishing each state's navigation and taxing rights. The conference failed. Virginia's delegates didn't show, but a new meeting was set for the following year at Annapolis. This time, the goal was a reform of the Confederation. When only five states sent delegates to the Annapolis Convention of 1786, leading figures like Alexander Hamilton of New York and James Madison of Virginia called for a new convention to take place the following summer in Philadelphia. Why would a new convention meet in 1787? The Federalists told the state government that its purpose would be to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Rhode Island, which had no interest in strengthening the Confederation, did not send a delegation. New York, where Governor George Clinton and the majority of the legislature were skeptical of the Federalists, sent a moderately pro-reform three-man delegation. Nationalist Alexander Hamilton received an appointment, but his friend and political ally John Jay missed out. In Virginia, which agreed to send a delegation to help propose amendments, Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry, long the dominant voices in the all-powerful General Assembly, stayed home. Lee confided that he did not think the convention likely to do work he approved. 
Henry, more prone to offer up a memorable line, later said he smelt a rat. Why? There was a little history behind it. Congress had been receptive in 1785 to 1786 when John Jay assured it that he could negotiate an agreement with Spain that would grant the states valuable trade concessions in the Caribbean. All he needed to offer in return, he said, was an American commitment to forego use of the Mississippi River, which then belonged to Spain, for 25 years. Under the Articles of Confederation, nine states needed to agree to any treaty, but Congress authorized Jay to negotiate the agreement anyway, despite the objections of the five southern states. According to James Madison, this move by Congress converted Patrick Henry from the champion of the federal cause to a lukewarm advocate at best. If Mississippi navigation rights were actually surrendered, Madison said, Henry would become an outright opponent. The year 1787 also saw the Confederation Congress adopt its most significant legislative initiative, the Northwest Ordinance. In that law, Congress provided that states could be carved out of Virginia's former Trans-Ohio River Territory, what we now call the Midwest. Among other things, it said in Section 13 that once they had been organized, the new states would be admitted to the Union on an equal footing with the original states. The federal principle, the principle of state equality, would guide their incorporation into the United States. Portrait of a Patriot Alexander Hamilton, 1757-1804, a native of Nevis, was among the most significant figures in American constitutional history. His monarchist musings in the Philadelphia Convention, in which he represented New York, did not have much effect on the shape of the Constitution. In support of ratification, he organized a series of newspaper essays that ultimately came to be known as the Federalist, which formed the nub of the Federalist case in New York, writing more than half the essays. In time, the series would form the backbone of nationalist interpretation of the Constitution. As Secretary of the Treasury under Washington, Hamilton enunciated the clearest argument ever made for a liberal, loose construction of the Constitution. He was killed by a political enemy, Vice President Aaron Burr, in an 1804 duel. Legal Latinisms Senate, from the Latin Senatus, the great national council of the Roman people. The federal government and most of the states have legislative bodies so named. A Vision of National Government the Virginia Plan. James Madison spent several months researching the history of confederations before the Philadelphia Convention met. He found much to encourage his desire for a stronger federation. He decided, in fact, to push for the abandonment of America's federal experiment. Madison, a veteran of many legislative battles in Virginia and in Congress, encouraged his fellow Virginia delegates, Governor Edmund Randolph, George Washington, and George Mason among them, to arrive in Philadelphia several days early. If the Old Dominion presented its plan at the beginning of the convention, he thought, that blueprint would guide the convention's deliberations. Thus, when the Philadelphia Convention opened, its first acts were to install George Washington as president of the convention, to vote to close the doors so that the public would not know what was being discussed, and to take up the constitutional proposals on which the Virginians had agreed. Those provisions came to be called the Virginia Plan. The Virginia Plan was the outline of a national government. It would have substituted a central government with all the power national officials could want for the federal government of the Confederation. This was a type of government to which the people were known to be averse, which explains why the Philadelphia Convention operated in secret and why its minutes, like James Madison's famous notes, were kept secret for decades after the event. 
Fortunately for us, there were delegates to the convention who kept notes of what was said, up to the point of their departure. Most notable are those of New York delegate Robert Yates, one-time Chief Justice of the Empire State. He tells us that Virginia's governor, Edmund Randolph, explained the Virginia proposal's rationale with three resolutions. 1. Resolved that a union of the states, merely federal, will not accomplish the objects proposed by the Articles of the Confederation, namely common defense, security of liberty, and general welfare. 2. Resolved that no treaty or treaties among any of the states as sovereign will accomplish or secure their common defense, liberty, or welfare. 3. Resolved that a national government ought to be established, consisting of a supreme judicial, legislative, and executive. As Yates explains matters, another delegate objected at that point that the goal of the convention was to propose amendments to the Confederation, not to create a national government. If it adopted the first two resolutions, then the convention would be at an end. When asked what the third resolution meant by the word supreme, the answer was that the states should yield when they conflicted with the federal government. Six states voted for that resolution, which was thus temporarily adopted. Over the following days, the convention adopted resolutions about a national legislature and a national executive. The limit of the convention's nationalism in its early days was reached when James Wilson of Pennsylvania proposed multi-state districts for the Senate, and the convention rejected his proposal. Monarchists and nationalists and federalists, oh my! It may be useful to note at this point that there were three parties in the convention. The first was a monarchist party, the chief exemplar of which was New York's Alexander Hamilton. The monarchists were intent on wiping the states from the map and substituting one unitary government for the entire continent. In the convention, Hamilton made a famous speech in which he avowed his admiration for the British Constitution and said that while the American people were not prepared to assimilate their government to the British model so closely as he could wish, he owed it to himself to speak frankly. He called for a president with a life term, senators with life terms, and appointment of governors by the president, all in the manner of Great Britain. Hamilton here displayed two of his outstanding characteristics, candor and intellectual brilliance. Many delegates, we are told, thought very highly of Hamilton's learned disquisition, although none joined him in his characteristic near-suicidal frankness. The second party consisted of nationalists, people who, without ever avowing admiration for the monarchical form, wanted to push centralization as far as reasonably could be hoped. These people hoped to establish a centralized government largely dominated by their own states. Most prominent among these was Virginia's James Madison, long Hamilton's coadjutor in the Federalist cause, whose work the Virginia plan chiefly was. In the wake of the convention, Madison would be greatly dismayed by the discrepancy between what he had wanted and what the convention had yielded. He repeatedly acted in positions of high public trust over the next four decades to bring the federal regime into consonance with his proposals, even to the extent of arguing that the Constitution meant what the convention had squarely decided that it should not mean. We will return to the topic of Madison's peculiar role in American constitutional history again and again. Finally, there was a cohort in the convention of members insistent on proposing a reinforcement of the central government while maintaining the primary place of the states in the American polity, a truly federal rather than national government. They would have their way in the short run. In time, however, constitutional law would undo their victory almost completely. Early in the convention, the committee of the whole House very narrowly agreed to create a national government with a national executive, a national legislative, and a national judicial branch. 
It also agreed that the national legislature ought to be empowered to legislate in all cases to which the separate states might be incompetent, and all areas in which the harmony of the states might be interrupted by separate state legislation. In addition, it decided that the national legislature should have a veto over state laws it considered contrary to the Articles of Union. At this early stage in the convention, the Committee of the Whole also decided that the national judiciary should have power to decide all cases affecting the national peace and harmony. How do we know these things? We can extract them from the record of deliberations provided by two of the delegates, Maryland's Luther Martin, who first provided the three-party classification of the delegates given above, and New York's Robert Yates. In addition, we have the Journal of the Convention. As the Philadelphia Convention early on decided to create a national government with an overwhelmingly powerful national legislature and a very strong national judiciary, and as by the end of the convention it had produced a federal constitution without either of those features, we are on firm ground in concluding that the change was no accident. The Constitution, as finally referred to Congress by the convention, featured a federal legislative body or Congress without either the sweeping legislative authority or the veto over state laws earlier proposed by the advocates of a national government and supported through the summer by the theoretical monarchists. We know that this decision was a carefully considered one because Delegate James Madison of Virginia repeatedly implored the other delegates to restore the congressional veto of state laws, only to see his arguments repeatedly rejected. Rather than wiping the states off the map, the convention made their continued existence essential to the selection of members of Congress. First, members of the House of Representatives would be elected by voters eligible to vote for members of the relevant state legislatures. No state, no representatives. And as for senators, they would not be selected by the president, as Hamilton, following the model of the British House of Lords, would have preferred, or by the lower house of Congress, as Madison and the Virginia Nationalists proposed, but were to be chosen by the state legislatures. Madison was very unhappy that the new Congress, like the old ones, would be federal, not national. He confided to Thomas Jefferson on October 24, 1787, that he feared the ongoing state role in federal policymaking meant that the new government would be too responsive to the people's whims. This new government would be inadequate to nationalist aims, just as the old one had been. Madison had also broached the idea that Congress should be empowered to sick the U.S. Navy on states that did not comply with national commands. The convention rejected that idea, too. There were other provisions displeasing to the monarchist-nationalist coalition as well. Instead of saying, Congress may legislate as it will, or Congress may legislate in any area to which it considers the states incompetent, the final Constitution carefully hedged congressional power. In Article I, Section 8, the draft Constitution included a list of congressional powers. Virtually all of them were related to foreign affairs and trade. They were also few and provided little wriggle room for expansion. And in the course of the ratification dispute of 1787 to 1788, Federalists from north to south promised to take a tightly constricted view of constitutional interpretation. The Judiciary Article of the Constitution also lived up to the hopes of the delegates favoring a federal over a national structure. Instead of giving federal courts power to hear any cases Congress wanted them to hear, that is, cases affecting the national peace and harmony, as the Hamilton-Madison Monarchist-Nationalist Coalition had proposed, the Convention restricted federal courts' jurisdiction in two ways. First, the Constitution did not require that there be any federal trial courts at all. In fact, Madison would promise in the ratification debate in Virginia that the new government would try to get along without them. Only if that experiment failed, he said, 
would federal trial courts be created. The Constitution also provided a list of the kinds of cases Congress might authorize federal courts to decide, which meant, as lawyers understood things in those days, that Congress could not authorize federal courts to decide any other kinds of cases. Instead of a national judiciary, in other words, one with power to hear any case that came to hand, Article Three created a federal judiciary that left most judicial power in the state governments. Not coincidentally, the various contentious issues roiling the American political waters today flag burning, abortion, state government recognition of religion, say through public prayer, and homosexual marriage, are not among those the federal courts were given power to decide by the federal constitution written in Philadelphia. Had the Hamilton-Madison axis had its way, the federal court's purview would have been greater. But the point is that the Hamilton-Madison axis did not prevail, and the constitution the people ultimately ratified gives the federal courts no scope to interfere in or rule on these issues. Nor did the Federalists, when they advocated ratifying the Constitution, pretend otherwise. This might surprise those educated in modern constitutional law, but it should not surprise anyone familiar with the factors leading to the American Revolution. After all, the people who advocated in the 1760s and 1770s a national authority to bind the states in all cases whatsoever were called Tories or monarchists, and they lost. The patriots, on the other hand, had argued for home rule, for the right of the individual states to govern themselves through their elected representatives. They had won the revolution, and then they won in Philadelphia. But alas, the fight was not over. Portrait of a Patriot, George Mason, seventeen twenty-five to seventeen ninety-two, was one of the towering figures in American constitutional history. His Virginia Declaration of Rights, seventeen seventy-six. The first American Bill of Rights provided a template, and in many cases, language for the other states—the federal, the French, the UN, and numerous other bills of rights. Mason played an extremely significant role in the Philadelphia Convention that wrote the Constitution, including helping to defeat efforts to draft a national, in lieu of a federal, constitution, and insisting that the assent of nine states be required for ratification. He also proposed that the House of Representatives initiate all money bills. That Congress be able to ban slave importation, that export taxes be banned, that lawmakers not be able to hop into plush positions in other branches, and that the House resolve electoral college deadlocks. Mason played a key role in devising the procedure for overriding presidential vetoes, and his refusal to sign the Constitution, coupled with his resounding insistence that it not be ratified until a Bill of Rights was added, helped spur Federalists to pledge to submit a Bill of Rights to the states in the first Congress. Legal Latinisms, veto, Latin for I forbid, a refusal by the president or a governor to sign into law a bill that has been passed by a legislature. Unlike the British royal veto, American vetoes can be overridden by supermajority vote. Portrait of a Patriot, James Madison, seventeen fifty one to eighteen thirty six, played a major role in assembling the Philadelphia Convention, but had a checkered constitutional record thereafter. In the convention, Madison attempted to create a national instead of federal government, with military power to attack states that did not comply with federal mandates, a Congress with unlimited legislative powers and a veto on state legislation, and courts with unlimited jurisdiction. He soon knuckled under to Virginian pressure for amendments, but he intentionally provided amendments without serious effect. As a congressman, he enunciated a strict constructionist reading of the Constitution in 1791. 
but he flip-flopped on congressional authority to charter banks in 1816. His bonus bill veto message, 1817, sounded like the Madison of 1791, as did his criticism of Marshall's McCulloch v. Maryland decision, but his confused response to nullification was both disingenuous and destructive. Madison was as unpredictable an oracle as the Pythia at ancient Delphi. Chapter 3. Selling the Constitution Guess what? Virginia's state constitution of 1776 was the first American constitution and the first written constitution adopted by the people's representatives in the history of the world. There was nothing in the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, or the ratification process of the federal constitution that created a national rather than a federal government. The arguments that were made for ratifying the Constitution are yet another subject most law students aren't taught. But these arguments are vital to the so-called original understanding, the real meaning, of the Constitution. By law, Congress had to send any amendment to the Articles of Confederation to the states to be ratified. So even though the Philadelphia Convention was proposing more than an amendment, it sent the proposed new Constitution to Congress, which forwarded it to the states for their consideration. A Rocky Road Even before the Philadelphia Convention ended, many delegates returned to their states to organize opposition to the proposed Constitution. They were bolstered when three prominent delegates, who had stayed to the end of the Convention on September 17, 1787, refused to sign the Convention's final product, the unamended Constitution. Among these non-signers was Virginia's governor, Edmund Randolph, who had presented the Virginia Plan at the beginning of the Convention. Randolph had many criticisms of the new Constitution, including that Congress's powers were not well enough defined, that the boundary between state and federal authority was not clearly demarcated, that the federal court's jurisdiction had not been sufficiently circumscribed, and that there was no Bill of Rights in the Constitution guarding traditional rights of Englishmen against federal infringement. Many states had their own Bill of Rights. Randolph's fellow Virginia delegate, George Mason, also refused to sign the Constitution, and for similar reasons. Mason had argued that the Constitution should ban the importation of slaves immediately and that a congressional supermajority should be required for passage of any tariff law. Otherwise, he said, the Northern majority in Congress would abuse the South to favor the North's interests, as it had tried to do in changing John Jay's negotiating instructions with Spain in 1786. A deal between New England and Deep South delegates on these issues defeated Mason's positions, to the everlasting detriment of the country. Of more concern to Mason, however, was the omission of a Bill of Rights. Mason was the chief author of Virginia's state constitution of 1776, the first American constitution, and more significant, the first written constitution adopted by the people's representatives in the history of the world. As chairman of the committee that drafted that constitution, Mason had also played the leading role in drafting the 1776 Virginia Declaration of Rights, which, in the manner of the English Glorious Revolution of 1688, set traditional rights of Englishmen in stone before the new Republican Constitution based on them was adopted. Mason, a self-described man of 1688, insisted that basic rights had to be protected first. When he raised the issue of a Bill of Rights in Philadelphia, however, Mason was rebuffed. A Bill of Rights was unnecessary, his fellow delegates insisted. This new government would have only the powers the Constitution gave it. As the Constitution was not going to give Congress power to infringe on the freedoms of speech, the press, or petition, the right to keep and bear arms, or any of the other English-descended rights Americans had always taken for granted, it would have no such power, 
There was no need, then, to provide against it. Mason was not persuaded. As Madison wrote, he left Philadelphia in a very ill humor. Framers versus Ratifiers We hear a lot about the framers of the Constitution. But who were they? The framers were the people who wrote the Constitution. What they did had no legal effect at all. The ratifiers, on the other hand, were the people who put the Constitution into effect. It was their act that made it binding, and their understanding that is significant. Just as today we don't care what some congressman's legal counsel thought when writing a legal provision, but look instead at the congressman's own understanding of and intent regarding it, so when it comes to the Constitution, what matters is not what the draftsmen thought they were doing, but what the people with legal power to put it into effect thought they were doing. Federalists Battle Republicans Over the Bill of Rights Advocates of ratification took the name Federalists, while their opponents, particularly in Virginia, called themselves Republicans. Federalists called Republicans Anti-Federalists, however, and historians, never slow to take sides, have been nearly unanimous in calling Republican opponents of ratification Anti-Federalists. The chief issue in dispute in the ratification campaign was whether the proposed Constitution would be consistent with the state-centered constitutionalism that the Patriots had fought for during the Revolution. Federalists insisted it would, while Republicans feared it would not. The most influential argument in favor of ratification was made by Pennsylvania's James Wilson in a speech at the Pennsylvania State House on October 6, 1787. Wilson, a prominent Philadelphia Convention delegate and future Supreme Court justice, had been a nationalist at the convention, but his version of the Constitution on that October day was thoroughly federal, or in the language of the day, foederal, F-O-E-D-E-R-A-L. Wilson said opponents of the proposed Constitution were not doing it justice, reminding the delegates that an important distinction needed to be made between state governments and the federal government. The people had invested their state representatives with every right and authority that the people themselves did not explicitly reserve, but in delegating federal powers, Wilson said, Congressional authority comes not from tacit implication, but from the positive grant. As a result, in the state systems, everything which is not reserved is given, but in the latter, the federal government, the reverse of the proposition prevails, and everything which is not given is reserved. The distinction being recognized will furnish an answer to those who think the omission of a Bill of Rights a defect in the proposed Constitution, for it would have been superfluous and absurd to have stipulated with a federal body of our own creation that we should enjoy those privileges of which we are not divested, either by the intention or the act that has brought that body into existence. In other words, it was ridiculous for the Constitution to guarantee rights that Congress had no power to violate, and the federal government had only those limited and expressly stated powers granted it by the Constitution. Wilson went further and said that including a Bill of Rights might be dangerous, because if such a bill said that Congress could not infringe the freedom of the press, it would imply that Congress might have had implicit power to do so, and that it might have the power to restrict other enumerated rights. Turning to the claim that the Constitution was intended to annihilate the state governments, Wilson said this was impossible, given that state legislatures were to choose the senators, the people of the several states were to elect representatives, and electors selected in a fashion chosen by each state legislature were to choose the president. Other Federalists affirmed Wilson's analysis. In Massachusetts, William Cushing, another future Supreme Court justice, said much the same, that the federal government would have only the powers it was expressly granted through the Constitution, in a speech written for his state's ratification convention. 
In South Carolina, ratification opponents worried that the proposed constitution might threaten the institution of slavery. But General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, a Philadelphia convention delegate and future Federalist presidential nominee, assured his fellow Carolinians that it is admitted on all hands that the general government has no powers but what are expressly granted by the Constitution, and that all rights not expressed were reserved by the several states. Pennsylvania and South Carolina Federalists achieved crushing victories in those states' ratification conventions. In Massachusetts, Federalists needed to persuade popular Governor John Hancock to support ratification. To do so, they promised that they would ask the first Federal Congress to amend the Constitution to include a Bill of Rights. Even with that concession, Massachusetts approved the Constitution by only a narrow margin. The pivotal state, however, was the largest, most populous state, Virginia. Virginia had provided far more than its share of leaders to the Revolution. The Philadelphia Convention had been presided over by George Washington, and James Madison had provided the template for much of the Convention's discussion. Once the Convention finished its work, Virginians Edmund Randolph and George Mason became the initial leaders of the Anti-Federalist campaign. If Virginia, which still included West Virginia and Kentucky, did not ratify the Constitution, the new Union would be cut in half. Perhaps more important, a Republican victory in Virginia would prevent George Washington from serving as the first president, and the Constitution's executive branch had been drafted with him in mind as the one chief executive the states would trust. Such was Washington's prestige that it was assumed that once he had set the standard for proper Republican presidential behavior, it would bind all his successors. What a patriot said. Is the relinquishment of the trial by jury and the liberty of the press necessary for your liberty? Will the abandonment of your most sacred rights tend to the security of your liberty? Liberty, the greatest of all earthly blessings. Give us that precious jewel and you may take everything else. Guard with jealous attention the public liberty. Suspect everyone who approaches that jewel. Patrick Henry, Speech to the Virginia Convention, Richmond, Virginia, June 5, 1788. Federalists and Anti-Federalists The Federalists generally were not Federalist, but Nationalist. Anti-Federalists, they were actually Federalist, and they called themselves Republicans, were not opposed to strengthening the Federal Government. They merely wanted to amend the Constitution before ratifying it. It all comes down to Virginia. The stakes in Virginia's summer 1788 Richmond Ratification Convention approached the stratosphere. A Republican victory would mean the defeat of the Constitution, as North Carolina and Rhode Island already had gone on record in opposition, and New York stood poised to follow the Old Dominion's example. Unlike those of the other states, Virginia's political elite split right down the middle on ratification. George Mason, former congressional president, Richard Henry Lee, future U.S. President James Monroe, and the dominant figure in the General Assembly, Patrick Henry, led the opponents. George Washington, James Madison, and veteran lawyer, judge, and politician Edmund Pendleton, along with Madison's lieutenant, George Nicholas, favored ratification. The Republicans, led by Mason, argued that the Constitution's grants of power to the new federal Congress and judiciary were too ill-defined, and thus that the new institutions were apt to claim more authority than the people intended, and that any new Constitution required a Bill of Rights. The Federalists argued the reverse. Governor Edmund Randolph, who had supported the Virginia Plan and then opposed the convention draft, announced early in the Richmond debates that while he considered the Constitution imperfect and that it needed to be amended before it was approved, he no longer believed that option to be available. Eight of the nine states whose assent was needed to put the Constitution into effect had already ratified. The issue now, he insisted, 
was whether Virginia would be part of the Union. He, for one, said yes. Patrick Henry mocked Randolph's newfound support of ratification and implied at one point that Randolph's motives were impure, and it seems that Randolph sent a second to Henry's camp to sound him out regarding a duel. Surprisingly, Randolph, whom George Mason now called Young Arnold after Revolutionary War traitor Benedict Arnold, became the chief spokesman for ratification. He was chosen for the same reason he had been selected to present the Virginia plan in Philadelphia. He was tall, handsome, and articulate, the very picture of a Virginia blue blood. The Randolphs were Virginia's leading family, including in their numbers Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall, while the brains behind the ratification operation, James Madison, was short, sickly, and in debate, often inaudible. Randolph's explication of the text carried great weight. The other delegates listened intently then when Governor Randolph explained that the new federal government need not be feared so much as Henry wanted it to be. No powers were being granted to the new Congress by implication, Randolph held. The new government would have only the powers it was expressly delegated. Federalists realized, however, that they had not persuaded a clear majority of delegates. Like their fellows in the Massachusetts Convention, they sought to persuade the unpersuaded with expedients they would not otherwise have adopted. They suggested, for instance, that Virginia could expressly state that it was approving the Constitution with the understanding that the rights of conscience and the press were reserved free of federal interference. Moreover, they said, Virginia could reserve a right to reclaim its delegated authority if the federal government exceeded that which was given it through the Constitution. These positions would be included in Virginia's instrument of ratification, which established the terms by which the state approved the Constitution. As the Federalists explained matters, the Constitution amounted to a compact, and Virginia was a party to it. In George Nicholas's words, If thirteen individuals are about to make a contract, and one agrees to it, but at the same time declares that he understands its meaning, signification, and intent to be what the words of the contract plainly and obviously denote, that it is not to be construed so as to impose any supplementary condition upon him, and that he is to be exonerated from it whensoever any such imposition shall be attempted, I ask whether in this case these conditions on which he assented to it would not be binding on the other twelve. In like manner, these conditions will be binding on Congress. They can exercise no power that is not expressly granted them. James Madison, too clever by half, wrote to a friend to say that this was all verbiage, that it would not really change anything. To Madison's mind, it was, in modern language, a lie. The plan meditated by the friends of the Constitution, Madison said, is to preface the ratification with some plain and general truths that cannot affect the validity of the act, along with proposed subsequent amendments. Were the rubes persuaded? Randolph privately said that five votes had been added to the Federalist column by his and Nicholas's explanation of the Constitution. In the end, the Richmond Convention ratified by a ten-vote margin, precisely the one Randolph counted. Madison conceded later that the Randolph-Nicholas explanation had been decisive. Very soon, Virginia's instrument of ratification would be elevated by Virginia's moderate Federalists and Republicans into the first article of the Jeffersonian faith. What a Patriot Said We have laid our new government upon a broad foundation and have endeavored to provide the most effectual securities for the essential rights of human nature. George Mason, on the Virginia Constitution and Declaration of Rights of 1776, in a personal letter, October 2, 1778. Federalists Who Lived Up to Their Name Leading Federalists in several states, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Virginia, 
insisted that the new government would have only the powers expressly delegated to it, even though they might have preferred otherwise. But what about the Federalist? So you might well ask, if you learned about the Constitution in college, or by reading the opinions of Supreme Court justices, Chief Justice John Marshall and Associate Justice Joseph Story were early proponents, or if you read some self-styled conservatives who should know better, whose journalism or books treat the Federalist as political scripture. The short answer is that the Federalist did not have much to do with the ratification of the Constitution in New York or anywhere else. Far from shaping the ratification debate throughout the United States, the arguments outlined in the Publius essays were unknown to virtually everyone outside the range of the New York papers. Virginia was the tenth state to ratify the Constitution, and its ratification convention was already meeting when the final Federalist essay first appeared in a New York newspaper, and the essays were not instantly reprinted in other states. Did the Federalist at least provide the necessary boost for New York to ratify the Constitution? Actually, no. When New York's convention met in Poughkeepsie in late 1788, ten states had already ratified. The question facing the Empire State then was whether it wanted to join Rhode Island and North Carolina in remaining outside the newly reconstituted Union. Besides that grim prospect, Republicans, led by Governor George Clinton, had to consider the possibility, brooded by Alexander Hamilton and others, that New York City would secede from New York State and ratify the Constitution on its own. It was on that basis, not out of love for the vision of the country presented by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and the Federalist, that New York held its collective nose and ratified the Constitution by a vote of thirty to twenty-seven. The Federalist does merit consideration, however, because the monarchist nationalist authorial coalition that produced it—Hamilton, Madison, and Jay—would play a central role in implementing the new Constitution once it was ratified. And what one finds in their collaboration. Is great confusion about the document produced by the Philadelphia Convention. At times, the three august revolutionaries describe the contemplated new government as federal, but at others, they make it national. In some places, they concede that the states would retain their central role in American politics under the new constitution, but at others, they read the grants of power to the new government very broadly. As we have already seen, Hamilton frankly avowed his monarchism in the Philadelphia Convention. While Madison was just as clear in his desire to see the Confederation replaced by a national government, John Jay, let us add, found this company perfectly comfortable. Hamilton, in fact, wanted Jay as a New York delegate to the convention, but Governor Clinton and the majority of the New York legislature regarded Hamilton, Jay, and the Federalist project with suspicion. Clinton and his supporters guessed rightly that the Hamiltonian Federalists had more in mind than modestly augmenting the power of the Confederation Congress. Reading the Federalist, one can arrive at either of two conclusions regarding its authors: either they were very confused, or they were attempting to obfuscate. In Madison's case, in particular, there is just cause for arriving at either conclusion. For example, his justifications of the structure of the Senate in Federalists sixty-two and sixty-three directly contradict his more candid and keenly negative appraisal of that body in private correspondence with Jefferson. While his confusion about federalism in Number Thirty Nine is consistent with his repeatedly self-contradictory musings on the same subject in Notes on Nullification and other anti-nullification writings forty years later, Hamilton, on the other hand, did not have a reputation for tergiversation because he did not deserve one. His was the opposite failing: boundless loquacity, which often amounted to imprudent logoria. And if he was confused in some of his Federalist explications, it was because he was honestly confused in his thinking. John Jay was always more diplomatic than Hamilton, but he also never told a lie.
A Book You're Not Supposed to Read, The Authority of Publius, by Albert Furtwangler, Ithaca, New York, Cornell University Press, 1984. The Question of Sovereignty, Never Really Explained. Let us consider some of what the Federalist had to say about the nature of the proposed government. In number nine, Hamilton writes, The proposed Constitution, so far from implying an abolition of the state governments, makes them constituent parts of the national sovereignty by allowing them a direct representation in the Senate and leaves in their possession certain exclusive and very important portions of sovereign power. Here we have a characteristic Hamiltonian muddle. Where had a national sovereignty come from? The states had been sovereign ever since establishing their independence, May 15, 1776 for Virginia, July 4, 1776 for the rest. Surely, then, their delegation of certain powers to a new federal government did not remake the states into components of a nation any more than the European Union's assumption of some powers formerly exercised by its sovereign members made Germany, France, Italy, and the rest parts of a sovereign European nation. Creating a federation made a federation, not a nation. The states would remain sovereign under the federal constitution, just as George Nicholas and Edmund Randolph would soon explain to the Virginia Ratification Convention. In Federalist 23, Hamilton admits that the circumstances of our country are such as to demand a compound instead of a simple, a confederate instead of a sole government. He thus admits the distinction between a federal and a national government. He goes on to say, however, the government of the Union must be empowered to pass all laws in relation to its powers. The local governments must possess all the authorities connected with the administration of justice between citizens of the same state. As Virginia philosopher-statesman John Taylor of Caroline noted, if sovereignty lies with the states, or with the people of those states, then the states, or their citizens, will have authority over the federal government. But if the federal government is sovereign, it will in the end have power over all the states, and the people of those states. Taylor, it bears noting, made this point in 1823, long before its truth had been fulsomely verified by history. This point bears reiteration in regard to Federalist 28. There, Hamilton says, In a confederacy, the people, without exaggeration, may be said to be entirely the masters of their own fate, power being almost always the rival of power, the general government will at all times stand ready to check the usurpations of the state governments, and these will have the same disposition toward the general government. The people, by throwing themselves into either scale, will infallibly make it preponderate. If their rights are invaded by either, they can make use of the other as the instrument of redress. In the same essay, Hamilton adds, The state governments will in all possible contingencies afford complete security against invasions of the public liberty by the national authority. Projects of usurpation cannot be masked under pretenses so likely to escape the penetration of select bodies of men as of the people at large. The legislatures will have better means of information. They can discover the danger at a distance, and possessing all the organs of civil power and the confidence of the people, they can at once adopt a regular plan of opposition, in which they can combine all the resources of the community. They can readily communicate with each other in the different states, and unite their common forces for the protection of their common liberty. Hamilton concludes that essay by saying, If the federal army should be able to quell the resistance in one state, the distant states would have it in their power to make head with fresh forces. The people are in a situation, through the medium of their state governments, to take measures for their own defense with all the celerity, regularity, and system of independent nations. 
Here, Hamilton holds out the prospect of state resistance to dangerous federal policy as the last ditch of free people's resistance to a runaway federal government. He cannot resist, however, referring to the federal government as national, which calls the reader's attention back to his earlier statements about sovereignty and leaves the ground muddled. If the federal government possesses national sovereignty, on what basis can the non-sovereign states ever resist it? Clearly, Hamilton Publius's teaching is self-contradictory. Insofar as he says that the federal government is national and sovereign, it is inconsistent both with what he says about the state's role in the new union and with what leading figures in the ratification debate, such as Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, George Nicholas of Virginia, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and William Cushing of Massachusetts, taught. In Federalist 31, Hamilton says, The state governments, by their original constitutions, are invested with complete sovereignty. In number 32, he concedes that the states, after the ratification of the Constitution, will retain the taxing authority in the most absolute and unqualified sense, and that an attempt on the part of the national government to abridge them in the exercise of it would be a violent assumption of power unwarranted by any article or clause of its Constitution. Under the new Constitution, he adds, the state governments would retain all the rights of sovereignty which they before had and which were not by that act exclusively delegated to the United States. In number 33, interestingly, Hamilton wrote that the final paragraph of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, giving the government of the United States power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers vested by the Constitution, was merely a tautology or redundancy. It did not imply that the federal government had any greater powers than those specifically stated. How, then, did Hamilton imagine the Congress and the state legislatures cooperating in areas in which their jurisdiction overlapped, as it did in regard to taxation? In Federalist 34, he cites the Roman Republic, in which two separate legislative bodies each possessed the power to annul the acts of the other. Just as we have become accustomed, in other words, to the necessity of the Federal House and Senate cooperating before either of them can enact its will, so Hamilton said that in the Federal system, the State and Federal legislatures would each be able to act in its own sphere, irrespective of the acts of the other. Hamilton hits upon this solution again in number 36. As neither the Federal nor State governments in the objects of taxation can control the other, each will have an obvious and sensible interest in reciprocal forbearance. The Congress and the state legislatures will each have a sphere, and within that sphere, each will act as it sees fit. John Taylor, on this point, agreed with Hamilton, writing that the federal and state legislatures are coordinate, co-equal, and independent, neither being controllable by the other. One could deduce from this, then, that sovereignty did not lie in either the state governments or the federal government, but in the people of the several states, though Hamilton missed this logical implication. The thinking behind Hamilton's statements that the federal government and the state governments were each to have some sovereignty can be explained by his preference for the British model of government. In Britain, then as now, Parliament, not the people, was sovereign. As Sir William Blackstone had explained in 1765, final authority in all matters lay in Parliament. For Hamilton, final authority lay with the federal government in some issues and with the state governments in others. He never seems to have understood the theoretical change worked by the American Revolution, which substituted popular sovereignty, authority in the people, for governmental sovereignty, authority in the government. This helps to account also for the divergence between what he said in The Federalist and what other Federalists more influential in the ratification contest were saying at the same time. Portrait of a Patriot 
John Jay, 1745-1829, played a leading role in the Revolution, both within New York and as a New York member and sometime president of the Confederation Congress. He and Alexander Hamilton led the Federalist Party in securing the Constitution's ratification in New York's Ratification Convention, partly through their series of newspaper essays, The Federalist. Jay served as the first Chief Justice of the United States, and during his tenure on the Supreme Court he negotiated Jay's treaty with Britain. He next served as Governor of New York under the state constitution of which he had been Chief Draftsman in 1777. His signal achievement as Governor was signing into law New York's Gradual Emancipation Act, which eventually brought slavery to an end in the Empire State. A Book You're Not Supposed to Read New Views of the Constitution of the United States by John Taylor of Caroline Edited and introduced by Kevin R.C. Gutzman Leesburg, Virginia Alethes Press, 2007 Portrait of a Patriot Edmund Randolph, 1753-1813 played leading roles in both the Philadelphia Convention and the Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788. Despite presenting the Virginia Plan, which was largely the work of James Madison at the Philadelphia Convention's outset, Randolph came by the Convention's end to insist that a federal, not a national, constitution was what was needed, and he refused to sign the document. In Richmond, Randolph laid out a states-right, federalist, not nationalist, version of the Constitution for his fellow delegates, insisting that Virginia would be as one of thirteen parties to a compact in the newly invigorated Federal Union. His reassurances explained Virginia's narrow decision to ratify the Constitution. The first U.S. Attorney General, Randolph sided with Jefferson in the Cabinet's bank bill debate in 1791. A Book You're Not Supposed to Read The Anti-Federalists, Selected Writings and Speeches Edited by Bruce Fronin, with foreword by Joseph Sobrin, Washington, D.C., Regnery, 1999. Who ratified the Constitution? The American people or the sovereign states? On this issue of nationalism versus federalism, James Madison's contributions to the Federalist are similarly perplexing. In Federalist 39, in particular, he decides that the proposed government is to be neither national nor federal, but an amalgam. This is, alas, an impossibility— unless, like Hamilton, one assumes that sovereignty means authority in a given area. On the issue of most moment, the procedure by which the Constitution would be enacted, Madison says, The Constitution is to be founded on the assent and ratification of the people of America, given by deputies elected for the special purpose, not as individuals composing one entire nation, but as composing the distinct and independent states to which they respectively belong. It is to be the assent and ratification of the several states derived from the supreme authority in each state, the authority of the people themselves. The act, therefore, establishing the Constitution will not be a national, but a federal act. What does it mean that ratification was to be a federal, not a national act? The act of independent states, not of a nation. As Madison goes on to explain, were the people regarded in the transaction as forming one nation, the will of the majority of the whole people of the United States would bind the minority, in the same manner as the majority in each state must bind the minority. So, each state in ratifying the Constitution is considered as a sovereign body independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act. In this relation, then, the new Constitution will, if established, be a federal and not a national Constitution. Madison would have done well to leave off here. He goes on to state, however, that the Congress will have one house apportioned by state and another apportioned by population, which makes it, he says, partly national and partly federal. 
He then notes that presidential elections are to be through an electoral college, whose appointment is partly national and partly federal, and makes several other confused and confusing statements of the same kind. There was nothing in the Declaration of Independence, in the Articles of Confederation, or in the ratification process of the federal constitution to enable an American people to create a national government. If the states really were states, they would have had to cease to be so at some time to have made themselves into a nation. When did they do that? When did an American people ever assent to or ratify anything? All of this talk about the Constitution making a nation must have been very distasteful to the population of New York, good patriots who had vindicated their state sovereignty in the Revolution. No wonder they did not flock to support Hamilton's vision. Instead, two-thirds of the delegates they elected to the state ratification convention opposed the Constitution. It was only New York City's threat of secession, coupled with the real prospect of independence from the other twelve states, that pushed an extremely hesitant New York into ratifying the unamended Constitution. Chapter 4. Judges. Power-hungry from the beginning. Guess what? The concept of state sovereignty, so dear to the delegates at the Philadelphia Convention, was effectively dismissed by judges only six years later. The omnipotence of today's Supreme Court would have surprised and horrified the founders, even the Federalists. At least two states considered secession because of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. What does the Constitution say about the courts? Not much. In describing the federal judiciary, Article 3 of the Constitution says, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one...